This call will be recorded or transcribed. Hi, Ernie. Hello, Father. Hi. Welcome to the first episode of Around the Bend. Yes, yes. Oh. Huh. I guess Round the Bend, RTB. So use the same podcast title. Um, I like that title because uh, you know the book was about guys this guy and his clones, you know, choosing different places. I feel like every time we read a, a, a different novel, you know, we're kind of putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. Mm. And we're kind of choosing to experience life. It's funny, uh, one of my daughter's books uh, is this Wings of Fire series, uh, which are always told from multiple points of view. So there'll be five books about five friends, and each book in the set is told from a different point of view. Um, mm. And then they also, uh, have characters who can read minds or whatever. And there's one character who's kind of this uh, insecure teenage queen who like hates everybody and has all these insecurities. And she okay. gets a sort of cursed magic ring, which gives her mm. visions of what other people's lives are like. And it teaches her oh. empathy. And, and I think mm. the author very much, that uh, she uses that theme or trope a lot, is that... Um, Inhabiting someone else's mind can give you empathy for them, and learning to see things from different perspectives changes how you see yourself and others. And so I think that's one thing that I really enjoy about this podcast with you is that we get to see other people's perspectives in the book, but then you and yeah. I get to see each other's perspectives. Like you see things right. I don't see and vice versa, and we yeah. get a deeper understanding of what it's like to look at life through somebody else's eyes. Right. Yeah. Hello? Yep, yep. So do you remember? No, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So do you remember? Yeah, this, I just, this is a, we're doing a Neville shoot story around the bend. Um, which yeah, is, I um, just saw that um, it was first published in 1951. So mm -hmm. I would have been 10 years old then. I would have been 10 years old. Oh, the age of my daughter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And um, I'm pretty sure. A lot of stuff was went over my head. Uh, so did you read I it then, at have, that age? I may not have read it right away when I was 10, but see, I finished high school when I was 14 and a half or something. The oh, Indian wow. system. I'm not sure if I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Was that common or was that I, I was, Yeah. W one year later, I left uh, home. Um, I think 1950. Seven is when I entered uh, pre-medical. So 1956 is when I was in college. 56, 57, I was in one year of college and then one year of pre-med. So 1956 would have been 14 and a half so or 15 turned, by the so time. you started medical school or pre-medical school when you were 16? 17, I think, because it was, uh, it was June. Uh, Fifty-eight. I was. I'm the fifty-eight batch. So, probably yeah, seventeen. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, so fifty-eight batch. You graduated. Yeah. Uh, you graduated. Or you entered when you were. You graduated when you were seventeen. Yeah. Okay. Seventeen. Similar to what you did when you went to. Went to MIT, right? Uh, yeah. Seventeen or sixteen and a half. No, I, I was actually sixteen. 
um, when I, uh, 16 and a half, right? Cause I turned, you know, I, I started college in 84 and I turned 17 just after I got there. In October. Yeah, October. So I started when I was 16. Uh, August, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So I left so, home when I was 16. Um, you, left home, you left home a little earlier because you did the sort of one bonus year of. Um, yeah. So the only, only difference is, you know, I, uh, you know, my childhood was totally different. I was very naive and um, inexperienced in a lot of things. And so even if I, I'm pretty sure I didn't read it when I was in medical school. So this would have been in either high school or college or something. And those days, I just devoured the books. Yeah, yeah, I just devoured the books, but without really going deep into them. I just kept reading and reading. And, yeah, uh, as I think I did too at that age. Yeah. So. So this was part of your sort of this is part of young adult fiction, I guess they would have called it. Right, things that, yeah, um, you know, that, that, that was you kind of known for sort of adventure stories, kind of that uh, genre. Yeah, this is what I, I was surprised that you know the list of the books that he had written, um, they were not that familiar to me. Um, mm-hmm. I think there was um, another author. That I read, uh, the name will come to me sometime. But um, that was more. Uh, the, one of them is called the Thirty Nine Steps, and um, mm-hmm. one is called the Green Helmet. And that's the author that I read most. And this guy, um, I remember reading this book though, Down the Bend, and one before that. And I don't remember what that is. Would have been the most secret of the far country, one of the two, but um, mm-hmm. it could be even on the beach. John Buchan, I guess, was the. the Green Helmet? The, the, the 39 Steps, I think, maybe also Green Helmet, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, this, yeah, I'm not sure if we talked about that last time, right? I was, I was like just devouring books when I was at college. And you mentioned Neville Shute as a author worth reading, and so I. Yeah, that's why yeah, I'm surprised so... he doesn't know. He got a lot of stuff from. He lived in Australia for a long time, so I thought there was. An he was governor story. general of. He was governor general of Canada. He was. Looks like the same guy. I'm not sure. It's two different people, but um, anyway, yeah. But he wrote uh, Green Mantle. Thirty-nine steps. Anyway, so mm, anyway, that's green, you know, you remember green mantle is mm. the one that shows up in Google, but maybe it's more. Anyway. Oh, okay. So okay. you were thinking of that. Uh, yeah, but I would, then, that was him. But uh, there was more Australian stories from uh, Neville Shute, and from uh, from what I'm reading now, it's a little, little bit more serious novel than just a mystery or uh, adventure. So we'll find out. Um, okay, so. Yeah, so yeah, this guy, John, you can end up as Governor General of Canada, same guy. Wow, okay. 
it doesn't. No, okay. Okay. All right. I'll send you a link to his. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Anyway, he's not the guy we're talking about now. We're talking about Neville Shoot. <laughs> yeah, and then Neville Shoot. Uh, I mean, this this book is not like the one that we read before. The other book, each chapter is only like ten pages or something. This one, yeah. each uh, chapter is like thirty, forty, fifty pages. Yeah. And it's a uh, and like his narrative, he, he practically moves along pretty fast, and telling the story. So, and again, the, we haven't come to the place where he meets this uh, other a character called uh, Constantine Shacklin. Sorry. So, I mean, sorry. Uh, you say you you say we haven't met him because we met him as a child. Oh yeah, see that guy. Oh, that's the same guy, uh, Connie, huh? Yes. So he probably yes. met him again. Oh, okay. Uh, oh. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So yeah. The the Connie. I I have big. You know. I, I remember it being. Uh, some of the scenes I remember. I remember that he met Connie as a child, and Connie was always going to churches. Right. Uh, right. Uh, very interesting religion. I totally forget everything about his marriage. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Which was. Right. Uh, I think I that went over my head thought, at the time. Yeah, uh, I, I somehow thought that that guy was. He, Connie had a sister, or this guy had a brother, or something like that. We'll find out. Oh, yeah, more. But it's uh, funny the, uh, the 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 gender bending, right? Because we first meet Connie when he's pretending to get married. He's pretending to be a girl and pretending to get married to him as part of an air show gag. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Again, in those days, uh, any many shows men played a women's part, even for right. the time of Shakespeare. Right. So, yeah, um, you know, it was. It, it was interesting. The, I mean, it almost feels like, uh, it, it like so this, to me, like the, the, you know, the clue we learned this guy is obsessed about airplanes, and yeah. he goes on to be a very successful. Uh, aircraft maintenance officer during the war and all these sorts of things. Um, but uh, again, you know, the, it looks like, you know, it is a lot of serendipitous um, episodes there. You know, he was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, I think one thing that really struck me was how supportive his family was, right? Because he literally, like, dropped out of his job to just go hang out, hang out at the airfield and... Yeah. Like the people that would tell him, "Look, we have no work for you. There's too many people applying." And he goes, "Okay." And like his parents say, "Well, if you're into it, just go for it, right?" He seems right. His parents are extremely supportive of his sort of crazy, harebrained passion for airplanes. Yeah. And it, you know, against all odds, just because of sheer perseverance, he gets a job. He studies yeah. at night and gets an engineering degree of some kind and gets the apprenticeship. And, yeah. Um, and, and all these things. A, yeah. Uh, interesting thing is, I think uh, we'll find out more. Um, Neville Shute may have traveled all over the world. Mm. The Middle East and uh, Asia and things like that. Because um, he seems to be, at least knows the name of the places in Egypt and the Middle East. He talks about Khartoum. He talks about, you know, all the... Uh, other places where he he goes from uh, Cairo 
he keeps going to different uh, Libya and uh, other places to service airplanes. Yeah, so he himself was an aeronautical engineer. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the um, interesting, other interesting thing is the Sony doesn't matter or doesn't uh, mind going to any church, which some, some somehow reminds me of our family. Right? Mm. Is that your experience, right? Because, you know... Well, yeah, so, so it's, it's not remarkable now, but I think if I remember my history correctly, mm. that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, whether you were Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic was a big deal. Right. Right. There, exactly. there were sort of separate subcultures and there was sort of this sort of mutual suspicion. I think, ironically, I think it's actually the, the Reagan revolution and the culture wars mm. that... Um, erased a lot of the traditional distinctions and kind of re-split things along conservative versus liberal. Um, but, but yes, I do remember we were very, in that more sea sense, Catholic in terms of, we didn't go to any synagogues or mosques, but we, you know, I think we had maybe heritage coming from India too, where Christians were such a minority, the sectarian differences didn't matter that much to you. Um, kind of. Kind of, but uh, rest of the family wasn't. Uh, How's that? Pretty much, still rest of uh, mom's family. Mm-hmm. Still, uh, Chitty is still an Anglican, an Anglican to the bones. Mm-hmm. Because even though uh, she, she doesn't her, feel even though her husband runs a Pentecostal independent church. <laughs> no, 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 no. Pritha Chitty. Pritha Chitty. Pritha Chitty. Oh, I see. Okay, sorry. The eldest. Uh, yeah, Chitty, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, of course, she also lived in England, so it's worth surprising. Uh, well, perhaps, yeah, she did, but, uh, you know, her children go to a ecumenical church, evangelical church, mm-hmm. but they are not comfortable. And most of yeah. our relatives, uh, till they became Pentecostal or charismatic, uh, they were only comfortable with the uh, Anglican Church or Church of South India, and a lot of yeah, our extended relatives and everybody. But whereas we uh, went mm. to the nearest church, uh, and the, it's not just attending, we felt comfortable in every one of those churches, and became yeah. active in every one of those churches, which is really unusual. And the, your mom, especially, is very comfortable <laughs> uh, anywhere, as you know. So, so, <laughs> We could go to, uh, when you were in um, Sacramento, we went to a church, the, the vineyard, where they would take a flag and they'll be waving it and mom would right. be there uh, uh, waving the flag. Then, yes. So uh, that, uh, an interesting yeah. thing is, uh, he says, uh, Connie says that uh, all you have to do is just go and sit in the back and see how they do things. and. Go from there, and don't they mind doing yeah. that? I don't think so. Roman Catholic priest came up. I was going out, asked me who I was. I told him I was just looking, <laughs> like in a shop. He didn't mind a bit. Yeah. He didn't mind a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I actually did that once in uh, at MIT. I was taking mm. an anthropology class, um, and and as part of that, I ended up visiting a mosque, and went okay. in the back and would kneel for, during the prayers or whatever. And, you know, the, 
uh, I think I was talking with someone, someone in the class afterwards. They said, did you feel uncomfortable? So not really, because I feel like, uh, you know, in this context, I was being respectful, even though I wasn't fully participating. He said, like, you know, so if they had said, oh, by the way, we have a visitor here who's, because I think I called up yeah. the imam ahead of time and said, you know, I'm in the class. I'd be interested in experiencing what your culture and traditions are. And he said, sure, come along, right? So I asked for permission ahead of time to do it. Um, yeah. I think this was, it was post 70s. So we'd had the Shah of Iran and sort of that level of Muslim fundamentalism had already been a thing. Um, though not nearly the I also like remember, Yeah, I also remember you going to the Hare Krishna movement when they were offered some food. Oh, yeah, for, you went yeah, there right. the Bible with you. <laughs> the Bible with right, you. I think I got kicked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was more co confrontational than that. But so yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but that's not really. It was more like a cult anyway. So anyway. Yeah. So um, an interesting thing is um, uh, then he he is so intent on his moving ahead with his life uh, ambition, which is to become an aeronautic engineer or something like that. He didn't have time mm -hmm. for any romance or other things and. Uh, Basically, the first girl he met there, uh, he married, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the, you know, there's all this foreshadowing that goes mm. on about, you know, we kind of made the decision quickly and we mm. skipped on the honeymoon, which you know, might have caused, you know, you know it, it, it was interesting. a couple of things are interesting about him. One is that mm. he's, he, with his retrospective looking back on the failure of his marriage he yeah. talks about all the things he did wrong so he took ownership right he says that yeah. i rushed this and, that. and he talks about how you know we thought we were in love with each other but we, i didn't realize that i was more in love with airplanes and she was more in love with just being in love love yeah right that was interesting yeah statement, yeah. yeah and you know, a lot of this seems to be very autobiographical you know the mm -hmm. i guess yeah. he's, he's, he's an aeronautical engineer he actually Hello? Hello? So, yep, sorry, you still you're, there? You're, you're cutting out, man. Yeah. Huh, that's weird. Auto, autobiographical, and then? Yeah, so a lot of it seems to be autobiographical, and hmm. so I wonder if there were either he or, he talks about, you know, the spoiler alert, right, is that he marries this girl, he, he takes a job so he could be a, advance his career during the war, he's in Egypt yeah. for two years, she gets into an affair with a Polish yeah. soldier and she says, oh, you should divorce me so I can marry him because he's rich and I'll go live with him after the war. And he says, don't be an idiot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when he comes back, you know, she, um, you know, she's had a baby and yeah. uh, finds out like the day he comes back, she kills herself. Yeah. She comes to uh, and, yeah. you know, it's a very tragic, um, and that's where the chapter ends is, is he's had this sort of idyllic airplane life with Connie and the war and all these things and being respected and advancing rapidly. And yeah. then this horribly tragic uh, family life. And, you know, he, um, he chides himself for not telling his wife that he loves her when he was telling her she was being an idiot, even though he intended that he, you know, he like, he, you know, even though he didn't take it seriously at the time, like deep down, he did care about her. He wanted, he, you know, he forgave her. He didn't hold it against her that she had this affair and all these things. So in that sense, he was generous. 
um, but he wasn't um, demonstrative or maybe um, perhaps the better word is empathic. Right? He didn't really understand the 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 dark mindset his wife was in. Yeah. And in some ways, because I almost think like because it was so easy for him to forgive, it didn't occur to him how deep the guilt his wife uh, must have felt. Yeah. And the shame. And then in retrospect, he says, you know, if I maybe if I had told her I loved her or written her. That, yeah. Yeah. So it's a. And it's interesting. Yeah. And then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind uh, of remember uh, in the story what happens mm. to Connie afterwards. Um, mm. But I don't really remember kind of uh, what happens to the boss other than he's just sort of this guy who I think, you know, spoiler alert, that he ends up being Connie's boss. But that's, oh, I see. Uh, yeah. But I don't really, I didn't really think about, I thought about the plot and the character and the things that happened. I didn't really think about the boss's mindset. Uh, do we actually know his name? The name of the author? The the narrator? Yeah, Tom Carter. Tom Carter, okay. Tom, Thank yeah, you, yeah. Tom, Tom Carter, yeah, Tom Carter. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I and, and maybe this is coming back, you know, 50 years old, mm. uh, looking back, I'm much more conscious of, you know, what is the, not just what happened, but what is it telling us about the narrator, the character whose eyes we are looking through, yeah. right? Because he's writing everything in the first person. And, yeah. you know, he's like sincere in his love, but, it, you know, you kind of, I mean, he kind of feels like a lot of engineers I know. It's like, I get married, I, I, I love the woman. Um, uh-huh. But now I need to get back to work, right? Is that his, mm. he lived in his left brain, you know, the logic and the career and the planning, and not so much in the right brain. Mm. And so, like, he loved her in his way, but he didn't really, like, seem to have, like, a deep passion for her. It mm. didn't seem to uh, change him in a significant way. See, I you think uh, the similar thing must have happened during the wartime. Yeah. Uh, I've heard about other things where the, the soldiers are 18 years old, they're going to be shipped overseas. Yeah. And so, and they may have gone out to the girl only a couple of times or something, and and quickly they get married. Uh, and then... Talking, they, proposing to a girl <laughs> after only meeting her three times. <laughs> well, no, that's a different story. Yeah. yeah. See, but it's a different, different uh, culture. You know, the, uh, I think you know when uh, last week when we had Pritachi's birthday, mom produced uh, a bunch of things that are very unique about Pritachi. The first, she was the first in doing a lot of things. She was the first one who they had to have a goat because she was allergic to regular milk as well as uh, the powders. So they had to get a goat. Goat milk was the one. There was a, she was uh, the only person to do that, first person to do that, first person to get a master's degree in their family, things like that. And then uh, after we said all of that, Dharma said, she was also the only person who said yes to a marriage without ever seeing me, <laughs> he said. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's one step earlier, more than yours. You at least saw it three days. <laughs> but, but I say, like, the difference is, the, the, is not the, the thing that's surprising from an Indian perspective is not that it was so fast, but 
So I mm. proposed to her rather than my parents proposing to her parents. Uh, not only that, and she said yes. That was And <laughs> uh, again, you know, I mean, coming from a guy who's uh, basically 100% American, so it's just uh, shocking yeah. to everybody. So anyway, we're not talking about my marriage. We're talking about this guy here. But you know, mm-hmm. I think there's a couple things that are typical of that period, right? Is that um, you, you like the, the genre itself? The male hero can have a girlfriend or a wife, but the driving force in his life is not the marriage; it, it's the war and his career. And right. he's kind of working in the wife around that, and it ends badly for him. And the so other interesting thing about yeah, the another interesting thing about um his career is it um it, he was not in the uh, Royal Air Force. Thus he right. was in the uh, supportive role and repairing all the engines and planes and things like that. And again, most of the things he learned were not from a course or a university degree. It's on the job training. Yeah, I also remember. Yeah, like I, I, I think I forgot the fact. Like he didn't actually fly planes for the army, and he wasn't even supposed to fly planes at all. But because he could fly planes, he would take them on test flights, and he would fly himself. There was no official pilot yeah. available. Right. So right. Um, I mean, that is the advantage of wartime. It's kind of like startups: is that if you can do something, yeah. they'll let you do it, mm-hmm. whether or not you're supposed to, just because everything's right. shorthanded. I also thought yeah. about thinking about marriage and romance. I have this hypothesis. I don't know if this is true, but that like my generation may have been the first one in human history that grew up just assuming I would never need to fight in a war. Because it seems like every generation, every country, they've always had mm. to sort of fight for their survival, you know, every 20 or 40 years. And, you know, I think. Well, but you had the, the Cold War, Ernie. You had the Cold War. Buddy. We had the Cold War, but, you know, after Vietnam, like any, like technically there was a draft, right? But you know, literally, you know, you know, I grew up in the era of Reagan, where America was just crushing our enemies, and so I came of age in that world where, like, yeah, like wars are things that happen somewhere else to somebody else. I mean, I know you had a right. friend whose son was killed in the Gulf War, and so it's a, it right. is a real thing. But he was purely yeah. a volunteer, right? He was, right. and like people argue whether the war was even necessary. It's not like an existential fight for existence the way World War II was or, um, you know, things like that. And, and, and I wonder if, you know, um, that, you know, you know, starting in the 50s to be, you know, because it feels like everything I've read in the past, um, mm. being a man was about knowing your place and being able to defend your honor. You know, that, mm. you know, the, the, the swords, the duels, the fighting, the yeah. boxing, whatever. And yeah. it feels like after, you know, the 50s, it became about, you know, being uh, uh, about making money became more like being a man was someone who could hold down a job. And, you know, then after. No, the but 50s, the side by side, there was side by side. There was other movement also. You had the hippies which, and uh, the free spirit. Well, but, like, and, uh, but that was the 60s, right? The 60s, yeah. the, hippie, the, the, the hippie movement. I think that it did, you know, it you know it went kind of crazy. and you know, 80s kind of was a swing back in some ways to the 50s with the, the materialism and the... Yeah. Uh, and the other side of the coin, of course, is also the, the women's liberation movement also happened. In the right. 70s. Yeah, so I think that the, the whole concept yeah. of marriage as an equal partnership 
yeah. is relatively novel, right? Right, Because exactly. before, there really was like the man literally had to fight to protect yeah. the family. And right. that was not a, a, a sure thing. And so it, there is a, um, it does feel like there's a fundamental difference in what it feels like or means to be a man, even if it's far more confusing and stressful in a mm. lot of ways. The, the best line right. I heard about uh, the women's liberation movement is that women fought for the right to be, take control of their own destiny and be treated as equal in the workplace and really shoved men kicking and screaming into taking more responsibility as fathers and providers and nurturers. And at the end mm. of this, women, uh, the latest survey said women are less happy and men are more happy. I don't know about that, but anyway. But the, the survey is okay, it depends upon the particular circumstances, yeah. And anyway. Obviously, there are differences from time to time, but in general, women are more stressed, you know, having to balance career and family than they were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, when right. they were repressed, you know, mm. into that. And men, you know, I can totally speak for myself, like, I have the freedom as well as the obligation to take care of my kids. And right. you kind of see the household. And even, and I think I'm probably a happier human being because of it. <laughs> you know, That's true, and it's funny. But, but not every family is like that. Really. Not every family is like that. But, yeah, you know, yeah, at least yeah. overall, you know, the societal measures, the aggregate statistics, does this. And, you know, there's actually something to that. In that mm. they say that traditional societies, um, you know, hunter gatherers are happier, right? Is that they 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 know their place, they they have traditions, and individuals may feel some angst or frustration or petty jealousies or whatever, but overall they're happier. And one of the ironies I think is that it's because everything is out of your control. Is that there's nothing you can do. You know, it's just based on the weather or the gods or whatever. Then uh, you don't feel guilty for anything that goes wrong. It's like, well, you just did what you were supposed to do, and if it went wrong, you know, you die or you starve or whatever. But it's not your fault. It just happens. I don't know. Uh, it could be, but the human spirit is such that that kind of a thing cannot last long because well, human spirit yeah, really the really Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, of course, is that. The flip side of that is this is why mm. moderns think of traditional cultures as lazy, because they would mm, do their yeah. bit and then they would stop and then it's all up to the gods or yeah. or whatever. Whereas being mm. uh, a modern, especially you know when you get higher up into the self-actualization ladder, where you're a professional mm. and you have control of your hours and your work, you're kind of forced to internalize all that stress and guilt and frustration in a way that uh, a traditional person can just defer it to somebody else. And, and it's like, well, now, you know, maybe if we thought about it harder, we could prevent a drought or we could prevent, uh, you know, the, the enemy from fighting us because we can, you know, build weapons or build defenses. Yeah, right, and then there's right. always something that you could do to reduce a little bit of a future risk, which creates right. all this anxiety that is the scourge of modern man and woman. Um, and that that seems like that's almost an inevitable price of civilization. Right. And, and the so other thing that's going on, a different, different uh, thing that I noted was his career was um, kind of mirroring my career. Ah. I, I was the right place at the right time in several things, and I, I was able to get trained in you know, chest surgery and, and things like that. And then, when I went to the mission field, 
because I was the only one there, I started doing things that which I didn't do here, you know, uh, doing prostate surgery and orthopedic surgery and even um, craniotomies, you know, things right, like yeah. that. So, uh, did you, I'm curious, did you ever think of yourself as a pioneer? What do you mean by pioneer? So, you know, the way that I, I remember you hearing your story when I was growing up mm. is was mm. like things just kind of happened to you. Like your dad made you come to the U.S. and you ended up in this profession and you ended up being, you know, the first person to do ophthalmologic surgery in our county and, and all these things. Um, and even now you're describing it sort of like being in the right place at the right time. But, you know, what I look at my... Right. Mm. But I have a very parallel story to yours. But the narrative I tell myself right. is that while I've always been yeah. a little bit different and always wanted mm. to kind of push the envelope and do things my own way. But, you know, the facts of our narratives aren't that much different. <laughs> you Not know? at all, because but you were in the right place at the right as... time, Ernie. Yeah, you definitely well, yeah, were in the right place at the right time. I was time. able to get away with it. Right. But the thing that mm. um, that I emphasize in my narrative is that. I was sort of dissatisfied with the way things were, and I was always looking for uh, something new to do, you know, to kind of push myself. And so, well, certainly I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed with the timing of things, you know, way beyond I could have expected. Like when I joined Apple in 1997, mm. like mm. I didn't know it was going no. to be a trillion dollar company. No, no, no. Right? Go before that. Go, go before that. When okay. you were in uh, Caltech, your professor gave you a old next computer. No, no, no. My professor gave me an assignment, and I talked mm. you into buying mm. me a eight thousand dollar used computer uh, that I. Oh, could I use thought. Wow! Well, all this time, I thought the professor uh, gave you that computer. No, or you bought it what from him. Was, mm. This is good to get the record straight here. So what happened was, yeah, mm. I was doing. Um, I was I was still planning to do theoretical physics, but there right. is no money in theoretical physics. But there's money yeah. in experimental physics. Okay, right. so I got a summer job working as a programmer for an experimental physics group. Now, okay. in parallel with that, I had done all this Unix work at MIT, Project Athena with DEC and right. IBM. Right. Yeah. That's, and then when yeah. I saw a Next Cube in, I guess it would have been you know, fall of '88 when it just came out. I was enamored with it because it was like everything I'd worked on, but so much better. And it was a $10,000 computer. Okay. And then I found that there was a one professor at Caltech who had already bought one, a guy named Jeffrey Fox, who was doing computational physics. Okay. And he was designing to sell his for mm. whatever reason. And mm. so I talked you into giving me $8,000 to buy mm. a computer. And I think because okay. like you bought me a car when I moved to Caltech, but I never really asked you for money for anything, right? Because right? I wasn't really into right. buying things. And mm. then, um, and so you did. And clearly yeah. that's the best investment you ever made. And clearly right. it was a big sacrifice because you don't even remember doing it. <laughs> no, but again, see, the next computer, then you got it. And then Steve Jobs went back to Apple with the next technology. Well, more than that. Actually, because mm. of the computer, because it was this new shiny thing, I spent mm. all my time reading about Next and reading about the computer business and the ups and downs. Right. And right. that was what gave me the entree 
uh, or the taste for business that got, mm. and that's where I met Rohit as well at the next user group at Caltech. Oh, okay. And mm. those two yeah, things, Rohit and studying business for next was what got me a job as a management consultant, which again, the right. timing was perfect because this was the first year that management consulting firms were uh, getting non non-managerial people. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were hiring PhDs, you know, so it was in the yeah. right place at the right time. And right. again, you know, the interesting thing is you could tell this story either way, right? You could tell the story like I'm just kind of going along and all of a sudden these extraordinary opportunities happen, which is kind of the way you tell your story. But the way I tell my story is that, well, I've always been kind of curious and hungry and wanting to push the envelope. And so I'm always looking for these things and they happen you know, and then they end up being far more impactful and successful than I thought. But like, you know, I was already agreeing to work at Apple, not because I thought it was going to be a trillion dollar company, but because I thought this is the most interesting thing happening in the industry, right. which it was. Right. So I was right, right uh, but I was mm. more right than I deserved because of the credit. Uh, because okay, of the, see. The time. So, and this is the thing, so this is what I'm curious about how, how much do you think about you yourself consciously trying to be in an interesting place or doing interesting things versus just happening to be in the right place at the right time. See, this is where um, God comes in. Because mm -hmm. this week we did a Bible study on Elisha. Mm, yeah, you're telling me about uh, that. Yeah, Elisha um, is going about his own business and then you know, there's a place called Shunam where is this very rich for a family. And the wife says to her husband, you know, this man is a holy man, man of God. We want to, we have to invite him for dinner. Reminds you of some other people that you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the guy comes to dinner and then she says to her husband, you know, he's going all along like this. We should build a room for him and she builds a room for him and puts a table, a bed, a chair, a lamp, and everything for him. So she told, tells him, anytime you go past this way, you can spend some time here uh, doing your prophesying. But he feels really obligated, like everybody will, and he uh, says, what can I do for you in return? I can talk to the king uh, or the general and get you into the capital. Basically, our group said, he wanted her to get into politics and go to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and this lady says, no, no, I, I'm happy here doing what I'm doing. I don't have to go anywhere. He still insists that he has to do something for her. As a servant, what what does she need? Now she's a rich person. And he says, they don't have any children. The husband's old. Then he prophesies saying, next year, this time you'll have a child. Remember the story? Yeah. Hello? I also remember how okay. it ends. Okay. So she, when he tells her that, he says, no, please don't do this. I always wanted to have a child, but never did. Don't disappoint me. She didn't want it. But next year she has a child. So one of the things that we learned was sometimes God, uh, so I asked, my, asked the question of these people, how did this miracle happen? By whose faith? And everybody said, oh, the woman's faith. I said, no, she didn't have any faith. She didn't think this was going to happen. No, no, she must have had a little bit of faith. No. <laughs> so I told them that 
God sometimes prepares things for us even before we even need it or want it. And, you know, we talk about it, uh, for, you know, Dr. Srivastava studying things for Larry's healing, and we mentioned the same thing. God prepares in a Bible verse before they call, I, I hear while they're speaking, I am, I'm hearing their prayers. So that's one of the things. God has been putting things in place for you and for me. And it looks like it happened by chance, but in, in my case, things were just happening the way he wanted it. And I just went along. In your case, you were seeking things, but still God had to influence some circumstances and other things in order for you to move. That's what I think. So that, it's absolutely true, but it's interesting because I feel like there is a because the reality is the same, right? We make choices, we put ourselves in certain positions, uh, we make different, you know, certain choices when opportunities come to us, but yet there is so much that is way beyond our control, right? right. You know, all, you know, things that, you know, turn out way better than we thought, a few things that turn out way worse than we thought. And, you know, there is a mindset of God is in control of all of this. Right. And, uh, you know, being grateful for the good. And, you know, one thing I'm really learning this week is, 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 uh, seeing God's redemption in the bad mm -hmm. and, right. you know, mm -hmm. kind of re finding that completion there. But, you know, it's interesting. But no, no, no. In our like... case, God's redemption, in our case, the redemption is in the bird. Uh, you know, again, uh, like when I was in, a, uh, in, Nigeria doing prostate surgery, not only was I able to do it, but also helped other people. That guy's need was satisfied. And when I did certain things, that I was acutely aware of this because it was not because of my uh, powers that uh, the healing took place. It was definitely, there was an unseen hand guiding everything. So, Right, but I mean, the thing that's interesting to me, you know, going with the, mm -hmm. the Shudamite woman, right, mm -hmm. is that it's one thing to say to see God in, in, in the things that go well, like I'm able to help yeah. someone, I'm able to make, mm. you know, good, good things happen. I join the company and I'm able you know, to make all this mm. money and all these sorts of things. The more uh, interesting challenge is seeing God in the hard things. And the Shunammite woman, the way that story ends, or right. the next place the is where the child dies, right? Yeah. And she goes, you know, didn't I tell you not to give me a child because I knew this time because I know I'm a wicked woman and I don't know no, 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 no. She said that, she, but, but, but no, no. Well, yeah, yes, she, she did say no, that, right? Ernie, no, no, no. What happens when the child dies? She was, you know, right. uh, she was holding him and she, he dies. What did he do? What did she do? She goes she and runs the child. The holy man. No, yeah. no, 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 no. She okay. took the child, okay. took upstairs to the room where mm -hmm. she had given Elisha and put him on his bed. And then... Yeah. Then she went to Elisha. So even though she was devastated, there's some reason why she went to Elisha. Right. So and, she she had a very I guess then, she had a very complicated faith, right? Yeah. No. And then Elisha says, uh, "Gehazi, go and put my uh, rod, uh, the the staff that he had, put yeah. on the boy." Uh, and this woman says, "No. Uh, you need to come. Basically, you have to come with me." Otherwise, yeah. I'm not going to leave here. So, I mean, I, I, this is the way I interpreted it. Her faith has changed. 
in the first instance, she didn't have any faith. She didn't think it was going to happen. But this instance, she knew God was going to use Elisha. And her faith had grown quite a bit in that time. She exercised her faith. That's how right, I but the interesting anyway, thing, ahead. yes, mm -hmm. is that like, but the words I spoke were accurate, right? She did say all those things. So her words yeah, yeah. were mm -hmm. kind of self-condemning, if you will. But her actions demonstrated that she actually, maybe in words she could not even admit to herself, she trusted that Elijah could do something and maybe there was a redemptive ending for her. Yeah, time. basically, I mean, without uh, the words are not there, but basically what she's saying, why did you do this? Can't you do something now? Or something, that, something like that. That was she didn't say it. But that's the reason she went there. She knew that he, he could do something, talk to God or whatever. Well, well, you know, well she knew, like so she, she knew, but she hoped. I think it's maybe yeah. a better oh, word. Yeah. yeah, she was developed, right? Hope. She, yeah, and, mm. yeah, and, and and but this is the interesting thing is that the you know the, it's it's one thing to see God in the gift of the child, right? Mm. It's another thing to see God in the death of a child. Right, right, and right. to hope yeah, for yeah. God in the midst of all that. I mean, and you know, yeah, some of the crisis right. you and I have been talking through over these last several years. It's yeah. one thing to see God when everything is going well. It's another yeah. thing entirely to see God when everything that seemed to be going well is falling apart. Like even with Apple, you know, there was this great three-year run, and then in 2001, yeah. Apple stock went off of a cliff, right? right? And so we made the decision that, like, okay, when Apple stock recovers, we will always sell a little bit of the stock. So that we're not, mm -hmm. you know, sitting here with worth of stock. Now, I, I, I've avoided ever doing the calculation of what would have happened if I had held on to all of my Apple stock. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, but you know, it's like, you know, uh, you know, you know, you could argue I could have had more faith. Um, although, you know, I, in 2007, uh, I was reading about the financial crisis the other day, and like, mm -hmm. I remember one telling yeah. me, "Oh, you got to sell all your Apple stock. It's horrible to be having all your money mm -hmm. sitting there when." You know, the economy's going down and Apple's a luxury good and they're going to die. And it's like, well, I don't yeah. know about that. Yeah. And like, yeah. best, you know, best decision I ever made financially, best advice right. I ever ignored. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, just leave all my wealth in Apple stock for a few years and see what happens. You know, that was a good yeah. time to do that. And yeah. so, anyway. And because of you, we also kept the Apple stock. Because yeah. Of you, we but, also you know, the thing is, is that, is that, you know, I, I think the, the, the short, you know, story is that, the two things are true. One is that, like, all these things are true, all these different perspectives, all the different faces mm. we look at it, you know, the Shudamite, Elisha, Gazi, mm. God's viewpoint. But the other thing is that I think that the more modern we are, the more responsibility we take for our context. You know, okay. when, we're, when we're sort of, in, I think, you know, traditional cultures, you just do things because it's the done thing. Your ancestors, you said this to me, like, you know, I did this, your father did this, his father before him, <laughs> you know, that was uh, a defining thing. And I remember when I was in India and I would visit, I said, you know, in some ways it feels so comfortable to be here and like know mm -hmm. my place. And, like everyone is my family here and I know mm -hmm. who I am to them and I get right, identity from right. that. And it's really very peaceful and calming. But at the mm -hmm. back of my head, I said, but you know, I would probably go crazy eventually because you know, the, the price of that is you don't really have your own individualism. It's not like, you know, my choice, my will that made these things happen. Yeah, but Ernie, you are looking at it from a, a man's point of view and uh, uh, from a uh, male view because mom mm -hmm. felt very frustrated in this kind of culture. Yeah, and, and, well, I think my yeah. point is, is that I, I think I would have too, 
And like, yeah. so there was, there's many benefits that come from that sort of um, traditional sort of cocoon, if you will, of status. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, right, but, but there's a, and, and, you know, so there's great freedoms that come from being more modern and more autonomous, but there's also a lot of anxiety and insecurity mm. that comes because mm. everything is more like, you know, you do have a choice and you don't have responsibility and all that. And, right. you know, in some ways, the you know people can argue about what's better and worse and and still do but in some ways the reality is you know this is the price we pay for greater agency like just like the boy right like he uh the tom the, the narrator he could have just stayed and um uh, you know he could have stayed in the, his farm town and uh you know just worked this lot but he had aspirations and that exactly. led him yeah. in a very positive way to these great experiences where he learned, you know, the mechanics. Never, but at the same time, that same drive, that same passion, you know, killed his wife, right? Because he was not willing to just stay and do what's comfortable or convenient, whatever one expects of him. He wanted to achieve this great thing, and he did. You know, he got all this respect and money and experience. Yeah. Right, right, right. But, right. You know, but, you know, and, and you know, this is the, you know, in some ways I feel like that is uh, still is part of the uh, conundrum of modernity is we achieve a lot more, but, you know, what is the price we pay to our relationships and our own peace of mind? Right. And, you know, so the, because um, like we talked, we, even though like our church will have a sermon on peace, like, you know, we need to be just more relaxed. And it's like, you know, that's true up to a point, <laughs> but, you know, and uh, one of the women said at Ben's is that we need to find contentment without complacency, which is hard. Right, it's easy to be content if you just yeah, ignore. Yeah, that's the difference everything. between yeah, yeah. That's one of my prayers, right? I mean, you know that, right? Most uh, my one of my prayers is Lord, I want to be give me contentment. If I ask for anything else, I want contentment, and for the most part, God gave me that. Yeah, but you know, the thing is, is what's funny is, mm. is you know, uh, is that one person's contentment can look to another person like complacency, right? Like you know, thinking about the pandemic last, you know, February and March. Mm. Some people say, well, you know, some people were saying we need to stay calm and not overreact. And so saying, no, this is actually a time, maybe not to panic, but to get like really agitated. And like, this is why it's hard is that, you know, if you just were trying to always be peaceful, you know, that's not sometimes the, what's the old saying? You've heard the Rudyard Kibling quote, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. Losing theirs, yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, his, his version of it is, you know, and blaming it on you. The version I heard here is, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, well, you just don't understand the problem. <laughs> you know, one person. You heard the saying uh, in the in the driving a car that you know when you're driving, everyone faster than you is a maniac, everyone slower than you is an idiot. Yeah. Right. That, I think right. it is easy to come into that same mindset. Like, okay, everyone who's worried more about something than you are, they're overreacting. Mm. Everyone. Right who is less worried about something than you are, they just have to bury their heads in the sand, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we, we sort of normalize based on our preference or our tribe or our background or yeah. whatever. And I'm not sure how we got here, except that this is, it's interesting that the author really kind of drew this stark contrast between his, you know, sort of idyllic, idealized, everything going his way, life with Connie as a kid, and that his sort of, you know, painfully tragic uh, uh, relationship with his wife. 
And I, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, because I, I totally forgot about the wife when I read this. I'm really curious how that's going to shape my perspective on this character and what he yeah. does down the road. Because it feels like Double Shoots a good enough author to get a real reason for including it like this. Yeah, right. But uh, on the other hand, you know, just look back and um, the way the story is that he he's going to leave in, a, in a two weeks or something and then he goes to his, her parents and they were all for it. I thought they would object. Retrospect, that was not really a good thing. You know, somebody, even though he was not going to war, he was going into the war zone. So if I had a daughter, I wonder whether I would have encouraged that marriage. But we don't know all the dynamics there, you know, uh, uh, what uh, they wanted for their daughter. One could argue that it was not a good idea for him to get married, for them to get married. Especially in India, he mentions that you probably didn't pick up on that in uh, in the Anglican culture. Any, in order to get married, you have to tell three bands: first band, second band. They all announce Indian churches, the Anglican churches. They announce uh, Ernest Prabhakar of uh, son of uh, John and Esther Prabhakar of Rochelle, Illinois, is going to marry uh, Sandhya John of uh, Kunur. Anybody? This is their first band. And so people have have objection. They can mention it three times, three Sundays or three church services. And they cannot right. do it in Lent. They don't do it in Lent. So that's why they had to go to registrar. They didn't have a church wedding because they had to go to yeah. a, a non-religious wedding. They didn't have the cultures. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the, the cultural norm at that time was that, like, you know, life is short. We don't know how long yeah. the war will last. We don't know if we're going to be right. alive. It's better yeah. to just like live life faster rather than live with regrets about all the things you That's failed true. to yeah. do. Oh, yeah. You know, and yeah. as a cultural norm, it, it was it was rational, right? But in individual circumstances, all these cultural norms can backfire badly. Right. You know? uh, and, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean, they they did what they thought was the right thing to do, but you know, looking at it from from this perspective. Uh, without any emotional attachment to that, then we can say, you know, they shouldn't have done that. So, um, and of course, you know, then she shouldn't have gone and uh, become friends with the Polish guy either. So, you know, a lot of it's what I also call resulting. It's like looking mm. back in hindsight, you can say it was a bad thing to do, or you can mm. look back and say, you know, the choice was to just sort of cowardly shrink back and avoid a commitment. Then maybe this was still the better choice, even if it worked out badly. Because mm. given how emotionally mature they were, you know, you know, the um, they couldn't have known any better. Or that you That's know, true. They That's like, true. Yeah. Said, like, you're we cannot really. Couples, yeah. I think it says something yeah. like ten percent of the couples that you mm. have these wartime marriages were unfaithful or dissolved or whatever. But otherwise, ninety percent of the time it worked out, right? So nine times out of ten, it would have been a good bet. Well, you don't That's know the statistics. Whether it's ten, you 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 don't know the statistics of ten percent or what. But anyway, well, but you cannot condemn them. You cannot condemn them. You're basically analyzing it, and maybe yeah. uh, it could be used in different circumstances somewhere. Suppose the same thing yeah. happens again. And also thinking like if you somebody know, asks you for advice. Have... No. Yeah, and like you where could we have made a different choice? 
yeah. in terms of like, you know, is it really like he looks at, you know, the insulated things like, oh, if I had had a better honeymoon, maybe we wouldn't have had this problem. That seems less likely to me. Right. Whereas yeah. if he said that he uh, told her he loved her, then that would have made a big difference. And like, that seems slightly more plausible, but still kind of iffy, right? It's almost like he's fixating right. on these things, concrete things right. he could have done differently. Yeah, right. Give exactly. him some sense that's of control. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right? what he's doing. Yeah. Talk about like, it's like, well, you could have looked at it like we say, right? You can look at it in terms of, I've made these choices, or you can look at it in terms of, well, these things happen and I have no control over it, which was also would have been a plausible way to to look at the situation. But we sort of feel it's more admirable to like take responsibility for what you could have consciously right. chosen differently. I mean, one, right. one, the, yeah. So it's, anyway, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this theme is going to come up in other chapters, but it, it's what definitely struck me about this section. Okay. Good. Let's see All what right. happens. Okay. Okay. Well, All right. I know it's part of the. Uh, tell the kids to call tomorrow. Uh, Sunday, Vivek is coming. So we'll be busy. They're coming for lunch and staying. So if they can't. Tonight or uh, tomorrow would be better. Okay. All right. I'll see what we can do. Okay, man. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. Have uh, a good week. Love you, man. Love you. Bye. Love you. Uh, bye, bye. Have a good weekend. Yeah. Bye, bye.